0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: I've shared with you before my experiences in India. I always I found it fascinating to go into a Hindu temple for the very first time. And there's much pomp and circumstance, and you're required to take your shoes off and so on and so forth. And if you've never been in one... It's fascinating because a Hindu temple, at least the ones that we visited, was not a single altar to one god, but in fact it is a an almost large courtyard-like affair with multiple altars to multiple gods. Within the, the deist system of Hinduism, there's 33 million different gods. And it's amazing as you watch the priests that will do songs and incantations and writhe about on the floor and cover themselves in paint and in ashes and and go through all these machinations in an effort to try and reach out to God, or a God, to try to get that God's attention, to try to get that God's appeasement. And it really is heartbreaking from a Christian perspective to walk through there and see all of this, and you you can sense about you demonic presence all around, and the depravity of man, and it's heartbreaking because all of this effort that goes forward and try to reach up to God and somehow connect with Him and appease Him, and yet we know from the story of the Bible that in reality, God came down. In fact, God came down in such a fashion that he came down to get his hands dirty. We're joined now by Johnny Moore, who coincidentally is a pastor, advisor, professor of religion, and vice president of prestigious Liberty University, and author of a new book whose title initially was slightly off-putting to me. And then when I got into the book, I realized, wow, this really spells it out. His new book is called Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, newly published by our friends at Thomas Nelson. And, uh, Johnny, great to have you on the program tonight.
2: Thanks. I'm really glad to be with you.
1: Your book is an interesting one because it paints a picture, people sometimes talk about cheap grace and so forth, it it, it paints a picture of the idea that in every respect, really and truly, God God came down, and as he did so, he, he, he rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty, didn't he?
2: Yeah, he did, and, and in so doing, Jesus busted through this concophony of praise from every religion in the world, every idea of God in all of human history that has been solely about man doing everything he can to get God's attention. And this Jesus, this dirty God, as i, as I called him in the book, decided that he was going to come down to planet Earth, and he was going to come after us, despite the fact that we had made this mess. He invited himself into the mess that we made, he got dirty and he gave us the opportunity to become clean again. So that's why I, I called the book Dirty God. I wanted to reflect on the, on the real beauty and transcendence of the grace of Jesus Christ.
1: In our fallen nature, all of this is counterintuitive, isn't it?
2: You know, it is. It, it's, you know, not natural that, that you know, it, we, we aren't to other people the way God is to us in Jesus Christ. I mean, uh, we, we hold people accountable and we hold grudges. And in, in the face of justice, God is just, but what he is, is he's also a God, a God of grace. And so he wrote a story that has been the plot of every novel of any success and every movie that we watch, you know, everything through all of history is the same plot, this plot of redemption over and over. It's grace, and grace is gotten, and grace is given, and Jesus is the picture of that. And I think it's time we resurrect the image of this of this idea of Jesus, the God who got dirty so the world could get clean.
1: You know, we oftentimes will hear the picture of, of grace as one that sort of paints God as being weak, that God is sort of capitulating to mankind. Well, if you can't live and abide by my laws and within the rules and regulations that I set forth, you know, even from the beginning, it wasn't a very long list. There weren't 10 commandments. There was just one. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we couldn't even manage one, let alone the 10 that we were given through Moses. And so now the idea that God would say, okay, I'm going to come up with yet another plan. And it, it ultimately kind of in the perspective of some suggesting that, that it made God seem weak, but yet in your new book, Dirty God, you, you wonderfully paint the picture that, in fact, uh, the notion, as we said before, of God getting his hands dirty by coming down and taking on the form of mankind is anything but a sign of weakness.
2: Yeah, you know, the the, the easy thing to do would have been just to give us what we deserve. I mean, we were the ones that turned our, our back on God, but what did he do? I mean, this is this is the God who made everything. I mean, The Bible tells us that Jesus is the heir of all things. He spoke the whole world into existence. I mean, we cannot begin to fathom the wealth and the influence and the power of God. I mean, we can't even get that in our head. And yet here's God, Jesus, being born in a manger, living his first night in a feeding trough. The the press release is sent to shepherds. I mean, he doesn't even have a place to put his head. He grows up in a village of 400 people called, called Nazareth, and eventually, when he starts finally preaching this gospel that he's brought to the earth, what do they do to him? They run him out of his own village, his own friends and family. They run him out of his own village and try to throw him off on the cliff. I mean, this grace that God has given us through Jesus Christ, I mean, it, it took God's strength. Not, it's not a demonstration of weakness. It's a demonstration of a God that could suppress what we deserve. In order to give us a second chance, and that's what he's been doing all through history. You know, my my book, Dirty God, is really a book about the kindness of God, the kindness of God given to the uh, to us as recipients of grace, and the kindness of God that we have the opportunity to give to others as distributors of it. And, and, and it is a, story.
1: It is at so many levels, so uncomprehensible. Because I, I think we all have an idea about. Things that uh, that presidents or, or, or kings do or don't do. I mean, for example, the, the president does not drive himself anywhere. He has a security detail and a chauffeur. The president doesn't go into the kitchen and uh, start pulling things out of the refrigerator and cook his own meals. He has a chef that does all of that. Uh, there are so many things that kings don't do, and yet all of a sudden we find this image of the king of kings, coming down and doing things that we would never expect him to do.
2: Yeah, and the people he hung out with. I mean, mm. I think this is one of the most fascinating stories about, about Jesus, is that he chose these disciples. I mean, he he chose these people. And you look at their stories. You know, you, you Peter, is, is, you know, who speaks before he thinks, and he's rough around the edges. You've got doubting Thomas, who's, who's you know clearly like a pessimist. You've got James and John, and, and you they're the sons of thunder. They called them, you've got all of these different personality types. These people always making mistakes. Jesus gets tired of them eventually and says, why are you being so dull? Why don't you just catch up, you know, with me? And, and I think that's part of the, the beauty of the story. I mean, Jesus came, and he could have come as, as a king. I mean, he could have, he could have done it that way. He, he could have gone to Jerusalem or Rome, but instead he goes to Bethlehem and Nazareth and Capernaum. And he doesn't pick the best and brightest. He picks people that are a lot like us, mm. and, and I think that's the amazing thing about all of this. I mean, he comes, Jesus arrives in a culture where Greco-Roman gods were known for their perfection in their temples. I mean, even their physical physiques were perfect. And Jesus arrives as a God that looks a little more like men, like everyday people, on the chance that everyday people, like the people listening right now, will feel that God cares about them and he
1: does that's the image of Jesus the dirty one. and what a what a poignant way in which to to get that point across I mean you, you, as you were talking about the picture of the disciples and this 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 ragtag group most of whom most most decent fathers uh, that care about their daughters would would, would hardly allow your daughter to <laughs> date any of these guys <laughs> let alone look at this group and say as very God, himself, I have selected you to take my message of reconciliation and restitution and forgiveness to an entire world. It just defies logic at every level, and I guess it's because at the end it it it, it most necess- necessarily Takes every aspect of man out of this equation. I mean, the whole key of grace is this—the unmerited favor that God has shown toward us—that no man should be able to boast in any of this process. And it really, it really, I guess, at the end of the day, defies our understanding, doesn't it?
2: It, it sure does. And what it shows us is that God saw in these disciples. You know, Jesus saw in, in these followers of His what they didn't see in themselves. He didn't see them where they were. He he saw where they could be. And he he both preserved their personalities, but he also redeemed their personalities. And you see how he used the characteristics of these people in in the story of Christianity, you know, when you read it through the Bible. Now, one of the things I really believe the Church needs to do is resurrect... The the human side of Jesus. You know, the, the church believes and has believed for for centuries that Jesus was fully God. He was fully divine, and he was fully human. And it's through the human side of Jesus interacting with these people that we understand how grace plays itself out in everyday life. And what we discover very quickly is that the least likely people are the people that God uses in the most profound way and his story of bringing redemption to the earth. I mean, probably the person listening even to our conversation now that feels like that the person least likely to be used by God to do something is maybe the most likely person, because, because our God is a God who takes joy in giving grace to people and using them in ways they can't believe. So the doubting apostles, you know, Peter, who denies Jesus three times, ends up becoming the apostle that Jesus allows to preach the Pentecost sermon when
1: thousands of people put their faith in him. So not, Jesus, not only using not where we are, not not only using the the least likely individuals, but but just as importantly, and and I'll have you go into detail on this, Johnny, after the break to to help illustrate God's willingness to, to literally come down and get his hands dirty, and that is to reach out and touch into the lives. of, of those that even other men would not do. There's a wonderful, I, I mentioned earlier about India, there's a wonderful illustration that you share at the the start of the book, Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, out of India, which parallels the story we see in Mark chapter 1. And we'll get to that aspect of our conversation. With us today, pastor, advisor, professor of religion, vice president of Liberty University. He is Johnny Moore. We're talking about Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, newly published by Thomas Nelson, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through, of course, uh, uh, amazon.com. You can also get more information on Johnny's website at johnny, J-O-N-N-I-E, johnny Moore, with an E at the end there as well, Dot. ORG. Back to more of our conversation in a moment.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: And back to our conversation. Johnny Moore is with us tonight. He is author of Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, also serves as Vice President of Liberty University. You start the book out and I and I think it sets up a wonderful illustration um, of the whole scene going on in Mark One and 41. And, and I think it wonderfully helps us better understand, and, and maybe you can kind of bring this into the modern day, if you would, Johnny, just how significant it was as Jesus interacted with the leper.
2: You know, we we don't really understand this in our, our modern time, because we, and particularly in the United States, I mean, we don't have these kinds of fear-inducing uh, uh, diseases and to the degree that it was in the in the first century. but. Um, in the first century, I mean, when when someone had leprosy, when they arrived inside of a town, if they even came into a town, they had to carry a bell with them, and they had to ring the bell. They had to announce themselves as a leper. I mean, if you saw a leper at the end of the road, you would go grabbing your kids and run to the other direction. And so, can you imagine when Jesus, in this like show-stopping moment, decides? That the lepers are the people he cares about. The lepers are the people that he wants to go extend his grace and his mercy to. You know, I mean, Jesus goes and hangs out with lepers. In fact, there's this wonderful story that everybody's all, all heard about, where where, the, uh, where Mary is washing Jesus's feet with her hair. But what people don't realize very often is that story took place in the home of a guy named Simon, the leper. And I think this is a wonderful demonstration of the of the attitude that Jesus had when he came down to planet Earth. I mean, he was after those that society had rejected. He was after those that were on the, on the fringes of society. And it wasn't to the exclusion of others. I mean, he, he came for everyone. But the show-stopping moments in the Gospel, if you read them within their cultural context, is when Jesus goes to the people that no one wanted to talk to and no one cared about. Jesus knew what it was like to be rejected. He was rejected because of this message. But he reached to the rejected ones, grace and mercy in the gospel. And can you imagine that hopeless leper when finally they were healed for the power of God? I mean, this was an amazing, amazing moment. It's no wonder Jesus became quickly famous. I mean, he was the God that went and spent time with those that no one cared to spend time
1: with. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we see many images in world religions of men who would be as gods I don't know what, that this is the singular case of a God that would be as a man.
2: I guess it is. I mean, this, this, this Jesus story is unique in all, all of religious history. I mean, I, I talk a lot in the book about uh, my, my work around the world. I have degreed in religion, I teach religion, I, I travel quite a bit, and I, I've been to the largest mosque in South Asia, and I've sat in the Dalai Lama's temple in this village he lives in in northwest India, I've, I've been to the holiest Hindu and Buddhist places and, and, in South, Southeast Asia. I've studied all of these religions, and the one story of everyone that's following a different path is they're trying to get God to pay attention to them. They're ringing their bells as they go into the Hindu temples. The Sikhs have their five Ks, and the Muslims have their five pillars, and the Buddhists are meditating, and everyone is trying so hard to get God to pay attention to them. But when God named Jesus came down the planet Earth, he announced one of his names as Emmanuel. It was God with us. And where every other religious idea in history seems to be a long road that leads to a door of good works and trying harder to get God to pay attention to them, the story of Jesus is a door that leads to a long road. The way to Jesus is an easy path, because Jesus isn't the God that dropped the ladder from heaven for us to climb up. Jesus is the God that dropped the ladder from heaven for Him to climb down to grab us and
1: take us back with Him. And as you point out, in so many cases of world religions, it's about either not calling attention to yourself, certainly, uh, big within Hinduism, I mean, in, in some cases, in some Hindu sects, uh, to even compliment um how beautiful the child might be is looked on with, with with great fear and embarrassment at least that you draw the ire of a jealous god and so the notion of trying to appease or avoid god uh and his wrath in so many ways is is inherent to all virtually every major world religion and yet here is one where it's not a matter of what we need to do for God, but rather what God has done for us. That, as Scripture reminds us, while we were yet sinners, Christ came to die for us. That through that substitutionary work on the cross, we might be able to find forgiveness and reconciliation and then restoration of a relationship with the very creator of the universe. It's a fascinating read, and I think one that brings great perspective on this topic, even though perhaps the title you might go, wait a minute, uh, it is true in many hands. Uh, it's amazing to see that God came down to get His hands dirty. The book called "Dirty God: Jesus in the Trenches" again newly published by Thomas Nelson, available through Amazon.com bookstores around the Bay Area, and of course through Johnny's website at JohnnyMoore.org. That's J-O-N-N-I-E, M-O-O-R-E. Dot org. Johnny, it's been a delight and an education to have you with us today. We'll hope to visit with you again soon. Thanks. My, my pleasure. God bless you. God bless you, brother. There's Johnny Morgan, Vice President of Liberty University, Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Prayer indeed does change things, as my next guest has found out. He is Dr. David Levy. He practices neurosurgery in Southern California. His articles have been widely published in a variety of neurosurgical journals, and he's an accomplished speaker and a co-author of a brand new book entitled Gray Matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer one patient at a time. And Dr. Levy, thanks so much for taking time to be with us on the program this evening. It's, it's good to be with you, Craig. Yeah. Uh, I, I found your your book and your observations on the power of prayer very encouraging, particularly in a day and age when there, there's so much being bandied about concerning what's happened with uh, health care in America. I got into an interesting discussion with a friend of mine who's involved in health care, and there had been some discussion about the fact that uh, more and more he's finding uh, both physicians and hospitals referring to the people that come through their doors as clients, to which I took umbrage and said, you know, uh, you may want to let your colleagues know that we patients – don't prefer to be referred to as clients because it just seems to kind of reduce us down to nothing more than somebody who helps bring money. And while I understand this is an important part of what needs to be done to, you know, keep the lights on in the hospital and, and to pay, uh, you know, the folks that provide the services that they do to keep us all healthy. Nevertheless, it was encouraging to see the perspective that you share inside the pages of gray matter, that there are some doctors out there who, uh, who still want to have a good bedside manner and who, in fact, uh, don't see us as clients but rather as patients.
3: That's absolutely right, Craig. Yeah, there are uh, quite a number of doctors, I think, that that really got into medicine because they care and they want to see uh, not just uh, uh, the patient necessarily physically get better, although that is our, our goal. That's what we are doing this for. But we also want to see all aspects of health. The physical is just one aspect. There's emotional, relational, and spiritual health, and we want to address all of those. We want to see the patient as a whole person.
1: Has your profession sort of succumbed to much of what we've seen in the scientific community in in the last hundred years, say, Uh, and that is those that would insist that there needs to be a brick wall, as much as we've seen a brick wall between science and so-called religion or science and God, has there been a trend toward that as well within the medical profession where, you know, it's okay if a patient wants to believe in God, but once they enter into the doctor's office, the hospital, the surgery room, uh, we need to leave God outside and never blend the two
3: you know that is that is how i was trained honestly and um I, I am ashamed to admit there was a time in my career where i um i just thought the patients were sort of wasting their time wasting my time um because i believed the surgeon's motto you know heal with steel or you know when in doubt cut it out and some of those uh, <laughs> uh things uh, we use to just uh it, 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 it's it it's not all uh, for the patient, we we have our own agendas that, that it, as we move into medicine. Is
1: there some tendency too, maybe? Uh, and I know the, the effort and work that needs to go into studying and preparing to become a successful surgeon of any level. Certainly at your level, dealing with you know surgery on the brain, neurosurgeon uh, is not a casual profession by any means. Is there a sense maybe? within some, within the medical community that, you know, why do we want to enter into praying for a patient or praying with a patient prior to a procedure? I'm the doctor. I'm in charge. I'm handling this. Almost sounding as if at a level maybe while not uh, openly recognized, almost a subconscious sense of, well, I'm not going to bring God into this equation because in my operating room, I am God.
3: You know, that is, that is, um, I think very correct. Uh, unfortunately, that is how I saw it as well. I, I, I admit that in the book that I, I really didn't want to bring God in because it, it did sort of make things complicated. I, I wanted to I wanted to, to take the credit for the surgery and things like that. I mean, it is a tremendous amount of time you spend learning these highly technical skills, and so you actually would like credit for those. and. Um, and so to, to pray or to have someone think it was their prayer that did it instead of you, at some level that's potentially offensive. But, you know, for myself, I realized, you know, after I'd done a technically perfect 11-hour surgery and the patient, you know, died the next day of a blood clot, I, 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 that was one of the things that woke me up to say, wow, I can do perfect surgery, but I don't control the outcome. Mm. And so I think we, we, you know, and if we're honest, then we start looking for, well, well, well what else is it? Well, what's happening here? Well, what about uh, the spiritual aspect of, of this case? Because something's happening. Uh, I did everything right, but, um, but I didn't get the outcome I wanted.
1: Yeah, there, there, there's that having the, to kind of succumb to the realization that there's something bigger than me. Behind all of this, and your story is an interesting one because you, as you out detail inside the pages of Gray Matter, struggled with this idea of to pray or not to pray, and <laughs> what that would mean, and kind of going back and forth. And then, you know, a, a, a wonderful, almost serendipitous chapter out of the book entitled "Physician, Heal Thyself." You go in one day to your own dentist. Yeah. T- tell <laughs> us, tell us what happened when when that light came on.
3: Well, I'm sitting in the dentist chair, and um my dentist, I needed to have a filling replaced. He draws up his syringe full of Novocaine, and you know, I, Craig, I've spent a long time in training so that I could, uh, so that I didn't have to be on the receiving end of those needles. So
1: you're uh, a neurosurgeon. I mean, <laughs> come on. This is this is a minor little dental procedure here. You wimp. Yes, but as when it comes to
3: injections, remember it's more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs> So I tense up, and my friend sees me. You know, he's trying to hide that needle down below the
1: chair. You know how they sure, do yeah, <laughs> not quite notice it. Yeah.
3: So I'm tensing up, and uh, he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he just says a short prayer. He said, "You know, God guide my hands. Uh, you know, bless David, something like that." And then I felt this peace come over me. It was it was just an unusual. I mean. The needle stick still hurt a bit, but it wasn't the same level of apprehension. It wasn't the same anxiety level. And on my way home that day, I said, you know, I really should be praying for my patients. I really feel like the Lord was speaking
1: to me uh, as I went home. And interesting how your dentist didn't say now, come on, David, you're a trained, experienced physician. You deal with surgeries significantly more, uh, you know, uh, dangerous and, and risky than this on an every single day. Be a man about it. He could have said any of those things. Yeah. But instead of doing that he chose to do something very very different. He 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 recognized number 1 his own need for God and the role that the Lord plays in this process which ironically as you point out suddenly gave you a greater sense of, of comfort.
3: Exactly. Exactly. And 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 so when I went to to I I basically said, "Well, wow, that, you know, that's as good as Valium. I mean, I should be giving people this. Well, you know, why, why am I not at least asking them? Not pushing it on them, but I think it's also very important to you know, to ask. But I tell you what, that first time I decided to pray, I was terrified. I walked up the stairs, my heart was pounding, uh, and of course, my busy preoperative area in the hospital was much busier than this dentist's office, where it was just, just he and I. There wasn't even a, a hygienist at that point. And um, so I decide to pray with my patient of the day, and I walk up to her bed, and everything seems fine. She's got her two daughters there, but there's a nurse. There's a nurse, and there's no way I'm going to pray in front of a nurse. I mean, this, this I've decided has got to be a top-secret situation. I don't want anyone to see me actually offer to pray with someone unless they think I'm you know, one of those nuts or something. Of course,
1: you're senior medical staff, you could have just kicked her out of the room. <laughs>
3: I, I do right, but I was I was trying to be sort of very smooth about everything uh, while I'm introducing prayer for the first time, and so I'm trying to outlast her, and I'm waiting, and finally I re- you know say okay I'll have to pray another day, and I I back up to the nurse's station. Uh, I didn't leave. I decided you know what I'm not going to give up. Maybe if I wait a few minutes, and so you know how we do. We pretend to I've got a page, and I pretended to be on the telephone. <laughs> and, you know. <laughs> So I wouldn't look too suspicious. It's, I mean, honestly, Craig, it was as if I were going to, you know, casing her room like I was going to commit a crime or something. I'm just sort of looking uh, like I was going to steal the woman's purse. I'm just waiting for the nurse to leave. Finally, finally, she leaves, and I, I scurry up, and just before I get to the bed, here comes the anesthesiologist. I turned right back around. <laughs> there was no way I was going to pray in front of another doctor, and and so I waited a little longer. Finally, they left and I went up to her bedside and before anyone else could come and I said, uh, Mrs. Jones, you know, would you mind if, if I said a prayer with you for your surgery? And she looked at her daughters and they looked at her and shrugged their shoulders and said, fine. So I, um, I, put, I, I was thinking about putting my hand on her shoulder but neurosurgeons are not very touchy-feely. We, we generally don't touch people unless they're under general anesthesia. They, uh, they have a covered with that blue drape and then we, we use a scalpel so uh, but I but that's what had been done to me this my dentist friend had put his hand on my shoulder and so I put my hand on her shoulder and I said uh, you know, her daughters moved in they bowed their heads and I just said uh, God thank you for mrs. Jones you made the vessels in her brain and you can help me to fix them and I just asked for Skill and for wisdom in this case and for success. In Jesus' name, Amen. I looked up, she was weeping. She's wiping tears from her eyes. Her two daughters are, are wiping tears away from their eyes. And I'm thinking, you know, what what have I done? You know, what, what what is this power? And you know, so I did what any surgeon would do at that point. I patted her on the arm and I left it for the nurse to deal with. <laughs> And here she came with her Kleenexes handing them out, and I hit the automatic door button and opened those doors and, and went off uh, to my surgery, which, uh, honestly, I had more joy in that surgery than I have ever had in my practice before because I the, the patients looked to me as if I'm God, but for the first time in my life, I had said, look, I'm not God. I'm very good at what I do, but I'm not God. But I would be willing to talk to him with you if that's what you'd like.
1: Well and the amazing thing about all of this too is that sense that you know as much as we as the uh, patients uh, want to know that you know what you're doing we also want to know that you care. And that's one of the real keys here. If you've just joined our conversation, Dr. David Levy is with us tonight. We're talking about his new book, The Experience of a Neurosurgeon Discovering the Power of Prayer, One Patient at a Time, the new book called Gray Matter. A brief time out. back with some closing thoughts from Dr. Levy as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: And back to our conversation, Dr. David Levy with us tonight, a look at gray matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer, one patient at a time. As you develop the the faith, the strength, the willingness to kind of take the risk, I guess we'd call it, doctor, and, and begin praying for your patients, what kind of a change have you seen come over, not just your practice, but your own personal relationship with God?
3: Well, Craig, I think that uh, that so many of us are burned out on medicine, and uh, I think it's, uh, I believe it's partially due to the fact that, well, we are to give glory to God, and I think so much of medicine is designed around getting glory for the physician, getting the referrals for the physician, and I've certainly uh, been guilty of that for many years. And so there's something about um as, as we give glory to God, there, it, there is a change that occurs in me. I, I, you know, just somehow the medicine takes on a different flavor. Um, you know, I can give you an example of a, uh, a patient named Ron who came in with uh, a, a problem in his, in the brain. He had a, a, a number of other problems. He was only 40 years old and he had um, arthritis in his neck and his back, and so I, I began to ask him about um, his emotional health. And I asked him something for the first time. I'd never asked a patient this before. I said, uh, Ron, is there someone that you can't forgive? And he's an enormous man. He's this uh, marine and enormous guy. And so he sort of looked at me with this, you know, very bold face. And I'm on one of those little rolling stools, and so I'm starting to roll away from him, <laughs> <laughs> rolling back to the wall. And finally he said, my mother and i said excuse me i thought you know maybe his drill sergeant or his father and he said no my mother and i said well well, ron what what happened and he said well my dad left when i was young but my uh my mom you know shacked up with a number of different guys and they would drink and they would uh they would get in fights with her and i got between uh, one of these men and my mother and i got knocked down the stairs and i i stood up and i said come on mom let's get out of here." she said no I'm not leaving and I've hated her he said I've hated her since that time and I've in um, 30 that was 30 years ago and so I said wow Ron that's that's what I'm looking for but I'm going to ask you to do something really courageous I'm going to ask you to forgive her I said uh, you know I want to help you would you be willing to do that so he he paused for a few moments and then said okay yeah I've I've, I've hung on to this long enough and so you know, I led him through a a prayer, a declaration of forgiveness um, for his mother and for this guy who uh, knocked him down the stairs and and then I said, Ron, um, you've forgiven. Is there anything that you need to be forgiven for? And he said, yeah. And so he, um, I said, well, who who forgives sins? And he said, Jesus does. And So he, he began to confess his, you know, his sins. Because, you know, when when people hurt us, we generally hurt others. That's just the way it happens. And so this man, you know, walked out of my office, you know, like a foot off the ground. He, he felt just emotionally and physically so much better. He still had to have the surgery, and the surgery went well. But even six months later, he was still joyful because I had taken the time. Now, the interesting thing, when he, when he stood up uh, after I finished uh, the office visit, he said, uh, he said, I feel like calling my mother. Mm. and he hadn't talked to her in 30 years. And so he, he, they had a family reunion. I mean, you know, that little um, conversation had an incredible ripple effect through that whole family because his mother had started going back to church in New York, and he flew back there, and other members of the family were getting together. And, and, and I think as physicians or even as friends— um, you know we can we can help each other forgive. I mean, if you listen to a friend or a colleague complain about their, you know, their ex or their boss or something, uh, and you've heard it a number of times, say, "Hey, I've heard that enough. Let, let's forgive. Uh, let's let's get this. This is not good for you. This is not good for your health." And so I, I really emphasize in the book the uh, the health benefits of forgiveness.
1: Certainly, it, it's had not only an impact on your practice, but your own personal life, too.
3: Mm. It it has, yes. I've I've certainly, um, obviously, have to practice what I preach. So I, I, um, uh, you know, I have to forgive. I have to, um, you know, actually have to make time in my schedule, usually lunch hour, to to spend talking with patients because oftentimes an office visit is not enough time. And so there's nothing I'd enjoy more than spending my lunch hour talking about a patient's spiritual concerns it's it's a it's just a beautiful time of my day um and so yeah my my life has changed and i think i think for the better
1: well we certainly appreciate you sharing with us tonight doctor i mean it, it just just goes so nicely hand in glove with the topic we had in hour number one this evening of the importance of the church getting involved and in impacting the world around us and what easier better place to start than to begin incorporating the power of prayer, not just in our lives privately, but also publicly as well, as Dr. Levy has done in his own practice. The book, Gray Matter, A Neurosurgeon Discovers the Power of Prayer, One Patient at a Time. The book published by Tyndale House and available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as as well as through Amazon.com. And uh, once again, our thanks to its author, our guest today, Dr. David Levy.